You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. We love rivalries, and uh, college football is going on right now. Some of you guys had hoped to forget that, but it's still happening. And in college football, there are often rivalries between your favorite team and the team that you love to hate. So some people say, my favorite team is, you know, Tennessee and anyone who beats Alabama or, you know, Florida, whoever you put in that category. And so we love these rivalries, but it doesn't just stop in sports. We have rivalries in all different parts of life. So even with cars, the classic rivalry is what? It is Ford versus Chevy, right? And people are convinced that one is superior to the other, and they think the people who drive the other are, you know, idiots and shouldn't probably have driver's license and all of these things. And, you know, you have this rivalry mentality. It doesn't stop there. Even in technology, right, of all things, we have rivalries. And, and it's Mac versus PC, or now Android. And people on both sides of the aisle are convinced that their uh, product is superior. And so we actually can find our identity in one of these sides, and we, we believe that, you know, our people who are fans of this or, or, you know, have this are superior then to the other side. And there is this rivalry that takes place. But it's not just in sports or in technology or in companies, but what we will see is throughout history, there is a rivalry of sorts that is taking place. And ultimately, the greatest uh, picture we see is the kingdom of God. And the work that, that God is accomplishing through his kingdom and the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of darkness who is battling against the kingdom of God. But what we see with rivalries is that if they don't remain even, they lose their excitement. So if you think about your favorite sports team, maybe there was a day when that team was, uh, the, the, the two teams were evil, even. And so they would have exciting, great games, and it was fun to watch. But now one of those teams has, has gotten so weak that it's not really a rivalry, right? It's not even a, an even competition. It's not enjoyable. Or maybe the company, you know, that you pull for, that, that you used to love, now is, is dwindled in sales, is even out of business. And so when the two sides are not even, the rivalry loses its power. And what I want to tell you is in the rivalry between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, it's not even, right? These are not two equal parties, but the kingdom of God is, is so superior. And the kingdom of Satan, though Satan continues to battle against the kingdom of God and try to stop the spread of the kingdom of God and, and rages against the people who seek to follow Christ, it's not an even battle at all. And that gives us hope because we will see today in Acts chapter 12 this, this picture of the kingdom of Satan waging war. And, and in, in this particular passage, Satan uses King Herod, this, this wicked king, to try to stop the spread of the gospel, to try to stop the church. Uh, but he is no match for the kingdom of Christ. And that's good news in our lives today. Because even though it's 2,000 years later from the book of Acts, Satan is still at work to try to stop the followers of Christ and to stop the gospel from spreading, but it is not an even rivalry. And so that should give us courage and confidence. And so uh, we're going to look this morning at Acts chapter, Acts chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, if you would go ahead and turn there, and we're going to read for a few minutes. We're going to read the whole passage. So beginning in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. 
This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And an angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and the brothers. And he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat on the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your grace in our lives. We're so thankful for the truth that you've given us in your word. I pray now that you would speak through me, speak through uh, your word. And Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts that recognize our need for you, our dependence on you, and that you would allow us to, to understand what you're teaching us and to respond to that in obedience. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So we, when we consider this reality that the, the, the kingdom of Satan is battling against the kingdom of God and the followers of Christ, if we are trying to follow Christ with our lives, if we desire to grow in our relationship with God, to accomplish the purposes of, of Christ through our lives, then we will face difficulty. And we're going we're gonna to see this. We felt will face opposition. And that can be very difficult for us, right? And so maybe in your life, uh, you are experiencing right now the realities of difficulty. You are in a situation uh, that, that feels like it's kind of beyond your ability to manage. And you're trying to follow Christ. You're trying to do the right thing. Uh, but it just feels like nothing is, is going right. And there's so much opposition. And, and what I want to do through this passage is to encourage you 
and to encourage your heart this morning uh, that, that through the principles and the truths of Acts chapter 12, that God would show you that you can have confidence, that you can have boldness, that you can have courage even in the face of difficulty. And the first truth that I want to point us to out of Acts chapter 12 that I think is so important for us to, to have this life of courage in the face of difficulty is that first and foremost, we must expect opposition. We must expect opposition. Now, what we have seen in this passage is that there is this wicked king named King Herod. Now, King Herod is actually part of a family. There's three different King Herods that we'll see in the New Testament, and they're all wicked men who are trying to stop the kingdom of God from spreading. And this King Herod, his plan is that he is going to stop the spreading of the kingdom of God through taking out leaders. And so he tries to, to arrest and kill the leaders of the church. The first time that we saw King Herod do this was with a man named Stephen. And if you've been here for the series, you'll remember uh, that Stephen was a man that was filled with the Holy Spirit, that was accomplishing the purposes of God, was doing incredible things. And ultimately, he was drugged outside of the city and stoned, uh, and, and he died as a martyr. Now, as a result of that, we saw that the gospel spread, that the kingdom uh, moved on to the Gentiles, and God used his example and his life to, to continue to spread his kingdom. Well, that was the first martyr. The second martyr that Herod killed was James. Now, James was part of the inner circle of Jesus. And, and James, Peter, and John were the three people who were closest to Jesus. They were kind of his inner circle. And so they were leaders of the church after Jesus ascended. And so when uh, Herod saw that James was a leader, he, he arrested him. And what it says is that he killed him with the sword. This is likely beheading. And so we've seen this even recently uh, uh, of the kingdom of Satan uh, empowering people. We've seen it through ISIS and terrorists, you know, that they take followers of Christ and try to behead them publicly uh, as a statement of, of authority and trying to stop the spread of the church. And this is exactly what happened to James as he was beheaded. And now what we see is that Herod, Herod saw that it pleased the Jews is what the text actually says. And he was a guy who loved glory, right? He loved people to love him. And so when he saw this, that it accomplishes his purposes, and also that the Jews are happy and think he's great, he's going to continue it. And so now he goes for the leader of the church, Peter, right? The man who's the most prominent leader in this early church. And so he arrests Peter, and he takes him and he puts him in jail. And his plan is to do exactly what he had done with James, which is to take Peter out and have him beheaded publicly. But ultimately, the point that I want us to see in this passage is we consider all of these realities of Herod opposing the church and, and these leaders, you know, being arrested and killed, is that we need to see that when God's people seek to live for him and accomplish his mission they will always face opposition and difficulty. When God's people seek to live for him and to accomplish his mission, they will always face opposition and difficulty. Now, Jesus said this very clearly. He said this to his disciples as they gathered in John 16, He said, you will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have overcome the world. Now, this is what we should expect Right? If we are followers of Christ, we should expect opposition, we should expect difficulty, but if we're honest, we don't. We're surprised when we face difficulty. We're surprised when things don't go well. We're surprised when situations that are difficult continue to linger. Why is that? 
If Jesus made it so apparently clear, why are we so surprised? Well, I think if we're honest, maybe one of the reasons is that at one point in time, we were scammed. Now, has anybody ever been scammed by somebody? Maybe you signed up for something or agreed to something only to find out you had no idea what you were getting into and you got ripped off. Uh, For me, this happened at the county fair. So I was at the county fair. This was a couple summers ago, and I was walking down the section of the fair that had the carnival games. You been there? So we had this guy who I will refer to as a carny, and he was sitting at, at one of these carnival games, and he had a game where you were throwing a dart a long way to hit balloons that were on a, a dartboard or a backboard. And so he starts talking trash to me as I'm walking by. And he says, hey, you could never hit one of those balloons with this dart. You're too weak. And I just looked at him like, what? You can talk trash? You don't even know me. And I'm like, oh, I could, but I'm not going to waste my money on, you know, your game. And he said, oh, well, you can do it for free. And I'm like, well, this guy just talked trash to me, right, publicly. And now he's going to give me a free dart. I'm going to show him what's up, right? I'm going to show him that, that I can do this. So I got the dart, and I threw it, and I completely missed the balloon. And he starts laughing at me. So I'm, I'm humiliated and enraged at the same time, and he reaches out a second dart. So I grab the dart, I throw it, and I hit the balloon. And so I get kind of cocky, you know, I look at him, and I'm just like, okay, what's up? You know, I, I hit it. He goes, that'll be $5. <laughs> I was like, well, I never agreed to pay you. He said, I, I said, you said the, the, that it would be free. He said, I said the first one would be free. That second one's going to cost you five bucks. Like, there's no way I'm not going to pay you. And he pointed to a police officer that was standing right there. He said, do we need to have a conversation with the cop? And so I was so enraged. I ended up paying the guy, but I was scammed, right? I was completely scammed. I was so mad at myself for falling into this, you know, carny scamming. And and I walked away just just humiliated. I had no idea what I was signing up for. And I think that, that in the Christian life, sometimes we can get scammed by people and we don't realize what we're actually signing up for. Maybe there has been a speaker or a preacher that has misrepresented what Christ actually said that a life of, of his father was going to be like. I've heard this. I've been in the room with a, a preacher who was preaching to kids, and, and he talked about, like, if, if you will just follow Jesus, then everything is going to go great, and then you'll get to go to heaven, and all your relatives that you love will be there. You'll get to eat ice cream every day. It'll be a big carnival ride. You know, who wouldn't want to follow Jesus, right? And so you see these kids respond. But, but the truth is that is that attempt to, to kind of pull people into Christianity is misleading, right? It misrepresents the life that Christ has, has actually called us to. And so sometimes that causes us, because we've, we've built our faith on these, this false expectation, it can actually cause us to misunderstand what Christ has called us to. So here's what I want us to see. The life of a follower of Jesus is not a playground, it's a battleground. Right? There is an enemy who hates Jesus, and he hates those who are following him, and so he opposes them. He fights against them. And so if we are going to follow Jesus and live for him, we will be hurt. We will face opposition. We will experience difficulty. And the truth is, 
That the more you seek to accomplish the mission of Christ, the more that you live for Christ, the more you share the gospel with others, the more you show the love of Christ to others, the more opposition you will face from the enemy. Now, we may not be thrown in jail or beheaded like Peter and James were, although there are brothers and sisters in Christ around the world this morning who are experiencing those very things because of their faith in Christ. But while we may not experience those things, we will experience opposition. And it shouldn't surprise us. Like that's what I hope we, this shouldn't surprise us, right? We should expect it because it's exactly what Jesus experienced in his life and it's exactly what he told us that we would experience. And it shouldn't discourage us because ultimately it is a sign that we are living a life that is accomplishing the purposes of Christ and it has eternal value. And if we have this mindset, it'll enable us to walk through even the difficult times of life, not as victims, but as victors. So notice, not only must we expect opposition, but secondly, we must rest in God's control. Now put yourself in Peter's situation. His, one of his best friends and other leader in the church, James, he's just watched him get arrested He's watched him get thrown in jail, and ultimately he's watched him have his head cut off. And now the same king that did that to James has arrested Peter, and he has put him into jail. And he's going to kill him. The only thing he's waiting for is during Passover, it was illegal for anyone to to carry out a sentence or a trial. And so as soon as the Passover season is over, which is about over, Peter is going to be brought out of jail and he is going to be killed. Imagine what you would be experiencing in that moment. Imagine what you would be thinking at that point in time. I mean, I know for me, I would be experiencing anxiety. I would be experiencing fear and and just thinking, man, what have I gotten myself into? Or maybe trying to scheme up some plan to escape. But what we see with Peter is that he is not biting his nails. He, he's not pacing around the jail cell or trying to come up with some like Shawshank Redemption, you know, plan to get out. What is he doing? He's sleeping. I mean, how is it possible to be in such a incredibly difficult, dangerous seemingly hopeless circumstance like that and being able to lie down and rest in peace. I think the answer comes from Paul's words that he writes in Philippians 4, 6 through 7. He says, don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Hear this. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, while, while Peter was being guarded by prison guards, his heart was being guarded by God. And he understood that though he was in this situation that seemed hopeless, that God was still in control and that God was powerful even in this moment. Our ability to rest in God is a direct statement about our trust in the authority of God. If we truly 
place our hope in God's power and God's authority over our lives, that the, the result of that will be experiencing peace even in difficulty. You see, times of difficulty reveal where our confidence actually lies. When we experience, you know, a time of, of difficulty or pain, it shines a light on our heart and it reveals where our true confidence is. And it makes me think of the shadow books that my son loves to read. I don't know if you all have kids that have these shadow books, but what they are is you open the book to a page and it looks like just kind of a dark landscape. But if you were to turn the page over, you would see that there is kind of a black, dark shape, but there's these white figures. And when you shine a light behind the page, it all of a sudden illuminates these figures and, and all of a sudden you can see things that you couldn't see in the natural light. I think in a lot of ways, this is what difficulty does to our hearts. It shines a light into our hearts and it reveals where our true courage and confidence lies. And if our confidence at that moment when difficulty shines that light, if our confidence is in ourselves and in our own abilities and strengths, if we find ourselves in a situation that's beyond our ability to get out of, that feels too great for us, then we will experience discouragement, we'll experience hopelessness, and we'll live in fear. But if during that time of difficulty, the light that shines into our heart reveals that we place our confidence and we trust in the power of God outside of our circumstances in control, then our heart will be illuminated because we will be able to have peace, we'll be able to have hope, even in situations that seem hopeless on our own. You see, our Lord is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the authority over all authorities. And if we can actually find that truth and, and allow it to penetrate into our hearts and settle into our souls, the result will be a life of, of joy and boldness and courage, even in the face of great difficulty. Well, notice next that we must depend on God's power. So we have this situation where Peter is led by an angel out of the jail, and he's kind of in a dream. And as soon as he hits the streets, it's like he comes to and he realizes, okay, this wasn't just a vision. This actually happened. And so he begins to walk down this dark street to a house where the believers were gathered. It's the house of a, of a woman named Mary. And we have this kind of humorous scene that takes place because, because Peter knocks on the door. Now imagine, he just got out of jail. I mean, pretty soon these guards are going to realize that he's gone. They're going to chase him down and, you know, try to bring him back. And he's standing in this dark street, completely exposed. He knocks on the door. He says, let me in. And this girl named Rhoda is at the door. She hears his voice. And instead of doing what we would hope if we were in that situation would happen, opening the door and letting us in, she runs away from the door. And she goes to tell the believers who are gathered in prayer, Peter's at the door. And the situation continues to get more humorous because the people who are, who are bowing down in prayer, when, when Rhoda says this, they're like, ha ha, yeah, real funny, Rhoda. We're trying to pray for Peter. Stop telling us jokes. Right? You're distracting us. And she's like, no, I'm serious. Peter is at the door. And they're like, Rhoda, seriously, we're praying for Peter that God would allow him to escape. Will you please stop talking so we can get back to that? 
And she's like, no, I'm serious. And finally, when she convinces them that what they are praying for has actually happened, they still can't believe it. And so they say, well, it must be an angel that looks like Peter. And so they go and they open the door and they see, lo and behold, God has actually answered their prayers, right? Peter is standing in front of them, not his angel, but he is actually there. And what we see through this, they, they were praying that God would do something that they didn't even truly believe he would do. And, and I see, I think in this, in this verse, we, we, you know, I think these early believers learned a lesson that we need to learn today, which is that what Ephesians 3.20 says is true, is God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. God is able to do far more abundantly than we can even imagine, that we could even ask, right? This was true in this situation, and it's true in our lives as well. So we show that we believe that through living a life of, of prayer. Now, when I talk to, to people, you know, in this church and, and other believers about prayer and their prayer life, so often people tell me, yeah, I just, I don't pray that much, right? Prayer is just not that much of a part of my life. And I think the reason for that, the reason why so often we don't have these, these active, engaging prayer lives is because we are, we are self-sufficient people, right? And in our culture in America, we're kind of taught to be independent. We're taught that we have to, to kind of have the strength to, to handle the situations that we're going to face. We have to depend on ourselves. We don't know if anyone else is going to be there. But the reality is when we do this, Right? When, we, when we depend on our own strengths and our own abilities and we think we can handle the situations that we face, then prayer doesn't make any sense. Because if we can handle what we're going to experience, then why do we need God truly? And so what happens as a result of this is that our prayer lives are not actually this, this ongoing ex expression of dependence on God and desire for his presence, but they're these like traditions Right? It's like these prayers, like, I know I'm supposed to say a prayer at this time and say these kind of words, and so I'm going to drop it in there just to feel like I'm doing the right thing. And I think the reality is, is that's not the, the, the picture that the Bible has of, of prayer. Right? A true life of prayer is by its very nature an abandonment of self and an acknowledgement of our dependence on God. Right, that's what prayer is. This is an abandonment of self, of our abilities, of our strength, and an acknowledgement of our total helplessness and dependence on God. That's what prayer is. Ian e. Bounds, a great uh, Christian writer on prayer, says, Prayer is God's plan to supply man's great and continuous need with God's great and continuous abundance. When we understand our great and continuous need, and when we see God's great and continuous abundance, that he is all-powerful, that he has all authority, that he is more than able to, to provide us with what we need, with his spirit, with his presence, with direction, with wisdom, with provision of, of earthly needs, when we understand that, and not only that he's all-powerful, but that he is a father who loves us, that he delights to give us what we need, that he delights to, to meet prayers in, in ways that we can't even imagine that he would, that that brings him joy as a father. That leads us naturally to a life of prayer and dependence on God. Well, notice fourth and finally, 
that we must hope in God's plan. We must hope in God's plan. Now, we've seen King Herod, and we've seen that, that he has authority and that he has used that to try to stamp out the church. And, and, and we would recognize, if we were in this time, I mean, Herod is a powerful man. Right? He, he has authority to control soldiers. He has authority to, to put people to death. But what we see is that Herod actually overestimates his authority and control. Because he actually thinks that he is a god. And we see this in verses 20 through 23. You have Tyre and Sidon that are these two uh, cities that, that Herod oversees. And for whatever reason, he's mad at them. And so they come before him, and he is able to negotiate some type of deal, right, that seems beneficial for everyone involved. And he is so proud of this deal that he has cooked up that he wants to, to have a public uh, ceremony where he brings people together and he tells everybody uh, this, this great deal that he's made. And so all these people gather, and Herod walks out. You know, he puts on his royal robe and, and all of his you know, kingly stuff, and he sits down on his throne, and he gives this speech. And everybody applauds and celebrates and says, you know, you're so great. But what they, what they do is they say, this is not a voice of a man, but this is a voice of a God. And Herod receives that gladly. Now here's the problem with that. Is that there is a true God. And it's not Herod. And yet Herod receives that praise. And this reminds me of a scene from the Avengers movies. Anybody a fan of the Avengers, right? So if you're not, allow me to nerd out for a second. So there's this scene in the first Avengers movie where Black Widow is, is in this plane with Captain America. And they look out the window, and, and Thor and Loki are battling, right? And, Black, and Captain America is about to, to jump out. And Black Widow says, I'd sit this one out, Cap. They're basically gods. And Captain America replies, there's only one god, ma'am, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. <laughs> I love it. There's only one God, right? And this is the reality. Harry, Herod believes that he has this, this God-like authority, but he doesn't. And so what happens? The Lord judges him. The Lord gives a very clear picture that Herod does not have the authority. And he's eaten alive by worms. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote about this. What we basically see is Herod develops this incredibly intense stomach pain, He's brought back to his chambers, and over the course of five days, tapeworms explode throughout his stomach and eat away his body until ultimately they eat him all the way out, and he dies. Now, obviously, that doesn't happen regularly, right? We don't see people, like sometimes we're like, man, I'd want to see a more immediate response. We don't see that. But in this situation, God judges him so clearly. Now, what we see in all of this is how quickly the tables have turned. Because a few days earlier, what it appeared was that Herod was in control and that the church and the followers of Christ were in trouble. And Herod had killed Stephen. He had killed James. Peter was in prison and he was looking forward to certain death. And literally in a matter of days, 
Peter has been set free from prison. It says that the word of God is continuing to spread and multiply. The church is growing and Herod is eaten alive by worms. And what I think we need to realize is regardless of how situations may appear at the time, God is always in control. And his purposes and plans will be accomplished even when it seems like they're not. Right? Even when we look at our life and the difficulty we face and we feel like God has forgotten about us. Even when we look at the world around us and we see the headlines in the news, we see just this tumultuous situation that's unfolding and it feels like God is out of control. But he's not. And things can so quickly change. We see in verse 24, the word of God flourished and multiplied. Even in the greatest difficulty. We've seen this through China, right? This incredible opposition to the gospel. And yet right now the gospel has spread more quickly in China. It's going to be the largest group of Christians in the world, right? God works through situations that seem hopeless, that seem helpless to build his church and to accomplish his plan. And that's good news for us this morning. Because it means that not only does God accomplish his plan out there, but God accomplishes his plan in here. He has the power to accomplish his plan for our lives, even in difficulty. Now, here's what I want you to hear. This doesn't mean that God will accomplish your plan. I think that so often people, they have their plan of their life. And they think that God is going to provide for that plan. And then when he doesn't, when difficulty doesn't get taken away, when situations continue and things don't turn out the way that they had hoped, they question God. They think that God is not there. But God never promises to bless your plan. What he promises is to accomplish his plan through your life. And if you can understand it, if you can maintain that focus, that the purpose of your life is to grow in relationship with Christ. The purpose of your life is to accomplish the mission of God, to, to share the gospel, to, to show the love of Christ to others, to, to be part of this greater mission that is happening through the work of God. If that is the focus of your life, you will be successful. And the greatest difficulties will not stop your life from being purposeful and effective. You see, the reality is, if the purpose of your life is to accomplish your purposes and to see your dreams come true, then if you face a time of difficulty, if you face a time where, where things don't work out, if you face a time where, where things just seem like they're not going to turn around, you will be hopeless, right? You'll be depressed. You'll lose hope. But if the purpose of your life is to bring glory to God, Right, to accomplish the purpose of Christ, then even in those difficulties, even in those circumstances, right, you can maintain hope knowing that God will be with you. He will give you everything that you need. He will provide everything that is necessary for you to accomplish his purpose with your life. And so this is the bottom line today. If the purpose of your life is you, then even if you appear to succeed, you fail. But if the purpose of your life is God, then even if you appear to fail, you succeed. God is sovereign. He is in control over all things. 
and he has no rival. There is no one who is equal to the authority and power of God. But Satan, the serpent, doesn't believe that. And he has battled against God throughout history. He has waged a warfare against those who follow God and seek to accomplish his purposes. And he continues that battle today. But what we know is the attempts of the serpent, the enemy, Satan, to stop the kingdom of Christ and to to stop the followers of Christ is a failed and desperate attempt. Why? Because his head has been crushed. You see, there was a moment in time when it looked like Satan had won. There is a moment in time when it looked like Christ and the kingdom of Christ and the purposes of Christ had lost. As Jesus hung on the cross and breathed out his last breath, it looked like the purpose of his life had failed. But what we know is that in that moment, the purpose of his life was being accomplished because he was taking your sin and he was taking my sin upon himself. And he was paying the, the, punish, the penalty and taking the punishment that we deserve to take. And for two days of darkness, Satan gloated. As Jesus was in the tomb, he gloated that he had been victorious. But then on the third day, light burst through the darkness. And Jesus stepped out of the tomb and he crushed the head of the serpent. And what that means is that Satan is conquered, that Jesus is king, and that all who follow Christ have been set free from the power of Satan and the power of sin in your life. This is the truth of who you are in Christ. But even though Satan no longer has power over us, we give him power because we listen to and we believe his lies. We believe the lie that we are a failure. We believe the lie that we are hopeless. We believe the lie that our situation is just too great. But they're just that. They're lies. And so we have to constantly remind ourselves of the truth, of who we are in Christ, of what Christ is accomplishing. And Jesus gives us a way to do that. When the followers of Jesus gathered around him in a room, on the day before he would be betrayed and ultimately arrested and crucified. They sat together around a table and there was a meal that was prepared before them. And Jesus took a loaf of bread that was there, he picked it up, tore off a piece. He looked at his disciples. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the bottle of wine that was there on the table and he poured some into a cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often 
as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Jesus said that as you do this, both his disciples in that room and his disciples who are here in this room this morning, we are proclaiming his death until he comes. And so in just a moment, as we take the supper, what I want you to realize is that as you take the bread and as you take the cup, you are making a proclamation. You are proclaiming something. And the first person that you are proclaiming this truth to is yourself. Because you are proclaiming the truth of who you are in Christ. And over and against the lies that Satan may tell you about who you are, you are declaring that I am righteous, that I am holy, that I am a son or a daughter of God. And secondly, you are proclaiming the truth as you take the bread and as you take the cup. You are proclaiming the truth that the power of Satan and the power of sin is no longer over you because you have been set free through the blood of Christ. And finally, as you take the bread and the cup, you are proclaiming that Jesus is going to return. You see, he said, do this as often as you eat of it until I return. So what this should be, as you're going through situations in your own life, I'm sure, that feel difficult, they cause you to question if God's there. As you look at the world around you and it feels like things are just going crazy. This is a reminder to you that while it may seem like things are out of control, they're not out of his control. And that he is going to return. And he is going to make all things right. And he's going to rule and reign over his kingdom for all of eternity. There will be no sickness. There will be no death. And he invites us to spend all of eternity ruling and reigning with him. So as we take this supper, let it bring hope to our hearts. But not only is this a proclamation to ourselves, but, but this is also a proclamation to those of you in the room who, who may not be followers of Christ this morning. I'm sure there are some of you here who have never turned from your sin and, and trusted in Christ. And what the Bible says is that the sin that's in your life separates you from God, that you are an enemy of God, and that one day you will face his judgment and justice, which is eternal death. But what the supper proclaims to you is that you don't have to stay that way, that God loves you, that he's done everything necessary by sending his son to die on the cross to pay for your sins. So that if you'll turn from your sin and trust in him, you can be forgiven and you can be restored to a relationship with God as your father that begins now and continues for all of eternity. And so if you've never trusted Christ this morning, I'd ask that you not take the supper. What I ask that you do is to allow this to be a time of considering the offer of salvation. If you would like to talk with someone about trusting Christ, go to the prayer and care room. We have people there who would love to talk with you about what it means to be saved. But if you are a follower of Christ this morning, uh, in just a moment, we're going to be passing out 
the bread and the juice. And I want to encourage you to take some time as we sing to, to just evaluate your heart, to look what, what are the struggles you're facing? What are the fears and the unbeliefs and the lies? As you look at the bread, as you look at the juice, let it speak truth into your heart of who you are in Christ, of the fact that he has set you free, and the fact that he's coming back to make all things right. Let's pray. Father, we, we confess our need for you. Father, we stand before you as those who so often believe that we are sufficient in our own abilities and strengths and wisdom to handle our lives on our own. But we know that that is not true. And we thank you that we don't have to. We thank you that you are the one who is in authority and control over the galaxies and the cosmos, and you are in control of our lives. And we need you. Father, we thank you that you have provided for our greatest need of our sin and our separation from you through sending your son to die on the cross in our place, to pay the penalty for our sin, and then to rise from the dead in victory over sin and death so that we can have hope of being set free from the power and authority of death. And Father, now as we take this supper, may it proclaim that truth to our hearts, that in you we are clean, we are righteous, we are children of yours. And Father, if there's anyone in here now who's never turned from their sin and trusted in you, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would convict them, that you would show them what you've provided for them, that you have done everything necessary to save them. They would see that. They would trust in Christ and follow him. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.